Welcome to the Wisdom and Wellness Parsha podcast, a weekly Eden Center podcast featuring Rabbanit Shani Tarragon with insights from the Parsha about women's health, relationships, mikveh and well-being. This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center that is transforming the mikveh experience by educating women how to use mikveh as the natural platform it is to connect to women's health, well-being and healthy relationships. Read our weekly blogs on a range of fascinating topics, download our wonderful publications, learn about our Balaniyot and Kala teacher trainings, and support us at theedencenter.com. Rabbanit Shani Tarragon has been a leading force in women's Torah learning and in Eden's work, and we are honored to combine two of her passions, Torah education and empowering us about women's health and well-being. Without further ado, Shani. Hello and welcome back to Eden's Wisdom and Wellness for Women weekly Parsha podcast. I'm so excited to revisit the Parshiot, especially because this week we have a double Parsha, Tazria and Mitzorah. And I can't think of any greater Parshiot to talk about issues of women's wellness than this week's Parsha of Tazria that begins with childbirth and ends the end of Parsha Mitzorah with the cases of Nida and Zeva with the menstruating woman. And maybe I say this a little too often that there are so many partio that in fact relate to these issues of wisdom and wellness and particularly for women, but obviously these partioed perhaps even more than more than others, and especially within the context of Sefer Vayukra. Now, in order to understand Tazria and Mitzorah that deal with matters of purity and impurity, we have to put it in the context, the broader context of Sefer Vayukra. We know that Sefer Vayukra is all about how do we create a relationship with Hashem and beginning with, as we saw from the beginning of Parshat Vayikra, Adam Kia Krivmikim, how do we get close to Hashem through the Mikdash? Well, this was actually perhaps climaxed in last week's Parsha, in Parshat Shmini, when we saw that Moshe Rabinu tells Aharon after seven days of preparing the inauguration ceremonies of the Mishkan, says on day eight, now you're going to bring korbanot through which Hashem is going to reveal himself. We're going to revisit Hitgalut Hashem that we haven't experienced since Ma'amad Har Sinai. And sure enough, we hear that right after Aharon brings all of his korbanot, then he comes out, he blesses the people, and vatetze ish milfane Hashem vatochala the people are utterly ecstatic. They see this fire of God, the manifestation of Hashem, and they realize that they now have not only been atoned for for Chayta Egel, they can go back to their status at Har Sinai. But at the same time, beyond just the ecstasy and perhaps even the fear about upon seeing the fire of God, how do they respond? They want to reciprocate. God appeared to them in the form of fire. So they want to appear to God in the form of fire. And they take an ish zara. As Ibn Ezra explains, what was foreign about this fire? Asher lotziva otam. The very fact that God had never commanded it. And albeit in next week's parsha, we're going to see that Hashem is going to command Aaron to basically revisit everything that Nadav and Aviyu did, to take calls, to take a Torah, to go inside the Kodesh Kodashim. And yet, Hashem had not yet commanded it. 
at the time that Nazav and Aviyu did this. They initiated their own form of Avodat Hashem. And that's why Vatitzei Eish fire once again comes out. And this time, as we know, is going to uh, consume Nadav and Avihu. After which the Torah then says, wait a second. And now we have to define these mandates of God so much more. We have to understand that Avodat Hashem is not about how we want to worship God, but how God tells us to worship him. And therefore, the Torah calls upon Aharon, we actually find now some definition as to these very amorphous concepts of a Kodesh and Chol and Tuma and Tahara. Kedusha is this intense relationship with God that right now is understood predominantly through the Mikdash. And the Torah is saying Hashem defines what's Kodesh versus what's Chol. And a weekday, it's a great day to feel close to God, but you can't compare it to Shabbat Kodesh, to a day infused with the presence of the Shekhinah. Similarly, God also is the one who distinguishes between the mandates of Tumma and Tahara, between what's considered Tame and what's considered Tahor. And what are these terms? They're very technical terms. Tum'a means that you're limited from going to the Mikdash. Tahor means that you can go to the Mikdash. And therefore, what we see here is that Tum'a and Tahara are technical divine terms. All too often, people associate Tum'a with negativity, with all these very, I'm even going to say, negative connotations. And by virtue of the fact that in the ensuing parshiot of Ayikra, we do hear that even sin is called Tameh because it limits our relationship with Hashem. But it bothers me very much when I hear people talking about, oh, well, now the woman is Anida, she's Tmei'an, something is wrong with her. No, on the contrary, we're going to see not only from Parsha Chmini, but primarily from Parshiot, Tazriya, and Mitzora, that Tuma and Tahara are part of the vicissitudes of life. They're part of a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch. We know that we can't always, even naturally, stay in a state of Tahara. Just as we can't always stay in that state of, of post-Yom HaKippurim. And part of being allowed to go to the Beit HaMikdash means that there also has to be some time off. There also has to be some distance. It's through the contrast that we're going to appreciate the closeness with Hashem. And therefore, when we take a look at the Parshiot of Tazriya Mitzorah, we see that this is really a continuum of Hashem defining the mandates of when one is Tameh versus when one is Tahor. For example, right afterwards, we hear that through eating, we have to recognize that there are certain animals that we're allowed to consume. Those are called the Tahor animals. Who decided that the cow is Tahor and a beautiful horse is Tameh? None other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And these are the definitions, the mandates of Hashem. So too then, we hear that it's not just about the objects that we consume. It's not just about how we relate to objects around us, even within to our with regard to our own physiological states, we see that God also defines when we can go to the Mikdash and when we're limited from going to the Mikdash. So when we look at matters of purity and impurity within the broader context of Sefer Vayikra, we see that it's with regard, more often than not, to the prohibition on entering the Mikdash or eating from sacrifices or other sanctified foods, and that's a state of ritual impurity. So Tuma is really a limitation of coming to the Mikdash, and Tahara is the precondition for entering. 
The Ramban hints to the significance of the state of impurity in his commentary at the end of Parshat Mitzorah in chapter 15, and he discusses the concept further when he speaks about Tum'at Mit, the impurity of contact with a corpse in Sefer Bamidbar. And he explains that the common denominator of all of these themes of Tuma connecting all the different forms and categories of impurity is in some degree always because of contact with death. And if that's the case, then what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is teaching us is that when it comes to a relationship, a spiritual, religious relationship with God in the Mikdash, it has to be one of Tahara. It has to be one of life. To this we know we just left Mitzrayim, and by this I mean celebrating Pesach. The religion of ancient Egypt focused upon death, whether it was their elaborate funeral practices, including the handling of the dead, mummification, provisions for the afterlife. We know about their burial sites, the pyramids, the royal tombs. So you'd see at Mitzrayim, Anna, for that matter, also the Makot, was meant to bring us out of this world, out of the Egyptian world of death, to a life of purity in accordance with the Torah. And therefore, the Torah not only prohibits us from engaging in Egyptian practices, but three times over prohibits us from returning to Egypt and also from communing with the dead. We are not supposed to be a death-centered religion. We are a life-centered one. And impurity, the laws of impurity sensitize us more to aspects of life. They relate to certain types of animals, as we said, also connected to death. For example, impure animals convey impurity only when they're dead. So someone who touches a live pig doesn't contract impurity. On the other hand, even the carcass of a pure animal, which died without shita, may convey impurity. So it's not that life, again, life does not impart impurity, only death conveys impurity. So uh, following the categorization of last week's parsha of pure and impure animals mandated by God, the Torah moves on to the impurity of a birthing mother. And notice then the bookends of the parshiot, starting off with a birthing mother who is compared, as we know, to a nida. And then we end the parshiot with the nida woman. And so again, all of these themes are going to have the common denominator in some way, shape, or form with uh, the contact with death. All these physiological forms, whether it's and the tum'ah that a woman, once she gives birth, contracts through the death of skin in the laws of tarat, through uh, the male emissions, a man's sperm that generally produces life, and a woman's menstrual blood that's part of a system that creates life. And it's the fusion between the male sperm and the female ovum that functions within the framework that creates life. So impurity appears when these systems die or are f- are, are emitted from the body. When there is fertilization and a pregnancy develops and the system that supported the fetus in the womb is discharged following childbirth, and this too renders the woman impure. Tzarat clearly entails impurity because it really is the death of the skin. And we know in Sefer Bamidbar, Aaron is going to plead on behalf of his sister Miriam when he sees that she contracts Sarat by saying that she is like someone who's dead. She's someone whose flesh is half consumed, like someone who leaves the mother's womb. Know that Aaron invokes the image of a fetus emerging half consumed in the context of Tarat to show us that there is a parallel between the death of of the of the placenta and the death of the skin. The common denominator then linking all these various types of impurity is the presence or contact with different manifestations of death. Let's even say then that death is in fact a warning sign 
that sensitizes us or affirms the sanctity of life. Life means not only the full and complete living of human life, but also that which produces and nurtures and maintains life, including sperm, including the blood lining of a uterus in preparation for or during pregnancy, including skin that protects the human body and life. And that's why we've attached to this podcast also the importance that we learned from this week's Parsha of being careful of your skin, of going for your annual checkups. Please, please, Gana, to detect early signs of skin cancer and all different types of skin cancers and discolorations of the skin, how important that is and how, in fact, this isn't just a, a physical guideline, but as we see from these Parshiotes, the skin itself is related to your religious state, is related to your relationship with the Mikdash. Life and death have both physical and spiritual significance. And our parshiot accordingly have both physical and spiritual meaning. We live in a generation in which doctors and scientists study and recognize, even within their professional capacities, aspects, aspects of both physical and mental and and. The psychological health, the moral, spiritual, religious aspects of this complex fusion, however, is generally left separately. Again, scientists will deal with the medical ones and they'll leave, you know, the, the rabbis or the pastors or whatever the case may be to deal with the issues of, of religion and morals and ethics in the Torah, however. These fears are always interrelated. They always appear together. And, and that's why even in our contemporary society, religious Jews seek to highlight the spiritual aspects even of what seem to be in these partiote, very physical partiotes. But there's no avoiding the physical medical aspect that's strongly emphasized in the text that somehow affects our relationship with God. The separation of the different realms that's so familiar for us today is entirely foreign to the understanding of Chazal, to Parshanut, and a Rambam, Ramban, of whom we know they were both uh, very prominent physicians themselves, can deal with the few between our physical and our spiritual with the importance of maintaining health as part of our relationship with God. The idea of sensitizing ourselves to life as a religious value and not just a physical value. The Ramban writes in his commentary, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu prescribes what the Jewish people must do in order to remain healthy, both in body and in mind. It's therefore not surprising that these partiot address fundamental medical questions, including some concerning a reality that we don't necessarily know today, for example, the quickly spreading plague of Tzarat, but at the same time, how it relates to ideas that we are familiar with today, with a birth, with postpartum phenomena. And it's remarkable to see how Chazal, when they teach these laws, also incorporate different medical facts that they knew from the Greeks and ancient physicians, and they cite this knowledge and without squirming or without any hesitation. And the reason is because they never saw any contradiction or separation between the body and the spirit. Both are created by Hashem, who oversees both realms, guiding us both in life and in Torah. And therefore, let's take a look at how Parshat Tazriya begins. It begins with the impurity of a birthing mother. And as we said, a very inclusio type of structure. After all, the birthing mother, upon giving birth to a male and a female respectively, will be tmea for seven days or 14 days, says the Torah, like Anida. 
So the question is, obviously, why not just talk about Anisa first? But it seems, though, that although the impurities of the birthing mother or the seminal issues menstrual blood fuse the partiot of Tazriya Matsura into a single unit, and it's interesting to note that the laws applying to a birthing mother are actually very unique, and they're the ones that are going to set the tone for the partiot. As we said, impurity is associated with death and purity with life. The process of childbirth results usually Baruch Hashem, and a live newborn who neither conveys impurity to the mother nor contracts the impurity of the physical remnants of the pregnancy that are passed through the body. So uh, we find very special laws. And it's not only that when she gives birth, there's going to be some tum'ah because uh, she is going to also rid herself of the placenta, but there's also something called pure blood. She has a purifying blood. This is a distinction that doesn't apply to any other category of impurity. The Torah starts then by explaining Tuma and Tahara in the physiological realm by showing us a case where impurity and purity coexist in the same place. The lining of the uterus, the placenta, the entire system that nurtured the fetus now concludes its function and dies. So there is some Tum'ah, but the newborn emerges to life. And that's why in addition to having seven days or 14 days of Tum'ah, of a loss of life that will both Anna, prevent her from going to the Mikdash and to be with her husband, the Torah then says that there are going to be another 33 days for a male, 66 days for a female, wherein even if she sees blood, the blood is considered Dam Tohar. It's considered purifying blood. Anna, in fact, Anna, the Parshanim, ask all about this, and we find an interesting machlok in a Masecha Nida, and Dafa, Lamed Hei, Amud Vet, continuing to Lamed Vah, between the Amoraim of Rav and Levi, concerning the question of whether the pure and the impure blood share the same source or issue from two separate sources. In other words, how could there be a case where a woman is bleeding, and for a certain amount of time, the blood is going to be mandated by the Torah as impure, and then it's going to be considered pure, which will allow her to be with her husband. So Levi maintains that it must be that a woman has two sources of blood and one opens up for seven days or 14 days and then it closes up and then the source of the pure blood opens up. And because, says Levi, pure blood and impure blood cannot emerge from the same source. So there have to be two distinct physiological processes occurring during childbirth. Ruff, however, disagrees. And he argues, as we know from a and various autopsies as well, that there's one source of blood. And it's a Gezerat HaKatov. The Torah declares that sometimes the blood is pure, and at a certain point, the blood, or sometimes the blood begins as impure, and then at a certain point, it will become considered pure. So here we find that what Chazal, who ultimately accept the opinion of Rav, they're teaching us that there really is a convergence of both ideas of purity together with impurity. And knowing then that we're supposed to appreciate and both of these ideas that take place, particularly during childbirth. And let's go on then to the case of Tzara'at. And in light of all this, we understand that the Torah's laws of purity and impurity and are going to relate to all different aspects of the, uh, the human state. And therefore, it's not just, you know, every once in a while in the state of childbirth, but Tzara'at is not, is, uh, as we're going to see, 
and not just a disease that will define one as ritually impure, but it's something that someone has to be sensitive to all the time. And even if we don't have actual tzarat today, the Torah is teaching us be sensitive to again, the greatest organ that you have, to your skin that covers your entire body. So what is this sarat? What we find is that the symptoms described in the Torah are not those of the disease that we call leprosy today or Hansen's disease, named after the physician who discovered the bacteria that causes it, because Hansen's disease and is a case where the hair in a lesion is shed or there are inflammations and swellings or even at times loss of extremities. No mention of this at all in Sefer Vekra. As a matter of fact, what defines Sarat is actually having hair, but the hair turns white. Moreover, Hansen's disease develops very slowly. And as shutting a person in quarantine for seven days and then inspecting him thereafter wouldn't really help, which uh, help us understand that ancient Sarat and Sefer Vayikra doesn't really exist and we're not really so familiar with it, even though if we open up Mesach Negaim, we hear of all different details and it was clearly known in the time of Chazal. So uh, let's talk for a moment about Sarat in the Torah. And that Tarat in the Torah and is manifest in not a red rash that generally is a sign of some type of skin infection, but actually a white rash or at least an absence of pigments inside the lesion, showing us that there is an absence of life, an absence of, of the Tahara. And, and therefore, if someone's entire skin turns white, if it has more of an albino phenomenon, then you're actually tahor because that's your natural state. So what we see is that the Torah is describing a case of loss of life, loss of life of the skin. As a matter of fact, the whiteness described in the Torah is not merely a lack of pigment. Chazal and Mesach teach us that the baharit, the bright spot, and the se'it, the rising, are actually four distinct shades. The baharit is either white like snow or white like the lime of the temple, again, in building, or the se'it is white like wool or, again, a newborn lamb or white as the membrane of an egg. Again, there's a significant difference, again, in obviously the the colors that we generally think of with regard to infections. And sure enough, the Ramban writes there that what is the goal of being so sensitive to all of these different types of skin legions? The Torah seeks the purity of Am Yisrael and their bodily hygiene and therefore removes the sickness from its start. For these symptoms are not yet full-blown tzarat, but they may develop into it. And therefore, in the case of tzarat, explains the Ramban, we have so many different stages. If one suspects it, you go to a Kohen, and he wants to see it's not enough that you don't have tzarat yet. He's already going to, to examine you and put you in quarantine to make sure that you're okay. And it, the Ramban continues in his Parshanut by explaining that the physicians write that bright spots could cause alarm and fear of tzarat. And the Torah calls them then negat tzarat without being full-blown tzarat. If the symptoms of impurity are clearly manifest following the period of quarantine, such that it may be said that this is tzarat, then it's considered full-blown tzarat. And therefore, we wait till the Kohen to pronounce it as tzarat, but it could very well be that sometimes it's a lesion that will unquestionably develop into tzarat and it's and therefore the Kohen already calls it tzarat because this individual should be separated from the people. Similarly, when the Kohen pronounces that he's impure, that it's tzarat, it means that he already can tell that there's a lesion, lesion that will not heal, but will continue to grow and spread. 
if you take a look at the Ramban's explanation, and it's phenomenal to see, as he explains that while the harsh symptoms of acute swelling and that or loss of extremities that appear with Hansen's disease, again, they're not mentions in the Torah, no full-blown grave condition, but rather the Torah speaking about even purifying ourselves from early symptoms rather than the disease itself. The Ramban offers his medical explanation as part of his commentary because he wants to show that the Torah makes no distinction between bodily health and hygiene and the proper moral guidance and purification of the soul because HaKadosh Baruch Hu created both. And as you're learning through this week's parsha, again, it's remarkable to see how the Torah can already is anticipating different diseases that are out there that we have to be so careful about. And now take a look at the laws of Tzarat. If there's any suspicion that maybe this person has the skin disease known as Tzarat, then he's already going to be under the watch of the Kohen for seven days. He's put in Bidud for seven days. And if after those seven days, the on one hand, it hasn't spread, but it also hasn't healed, then he is going to be put in quarantine for another seven days. And only after that amount of time can we tell whether or not he's really healthy or not. And if he's not, then he's taken outside of the machane, again, where the Kohen is going to take care of him and where he's going to come and see whether or not he's being healed. Again, he's put basically in his own little hotel, Michutz la machane. And then the Kohen will, once he's diagnosed as healthy, then there's a whole gradual process of the Mitzorah returning first to the camp and then to the Mikdash. And you can't help but realize how everything going on today with coronavirus so much resembles the laws of Tzarat. And therefore, I mentioned this before, but I can't help if I talk about how, again, perhaps this is a way of sensitizing us to what, what the laws of the Mikdash are all about. Can you imagine just a few months ago, if we would be learning these Parshia, we would say, this is so strange. Again, someone who has a suspicious lesion is going to go not to his doctor, but to his Kohen and get it checked out. And the Kohen is going to be an expert in these laws. And he's going to know when it is dangerous and when it's not. And then he puts him in bidud literally for 14 days. And we want to see whether it develops into a disease. And this is truly, truly remarkable. And the Torah is saying that it doesn't just affect your physical state, it affects your spiritual state. You can't go to the mikdash during this time. The two are inextricably connected. And this is such a beautiful idea, so much so that if you open up and you see the different forms of negate tzarat, it's not just that one morning you wake up and all of a sudden you have this brightness or whiteness of your skin, you have a lack of pigmentation, you have dead skin, but it can also develop even from shrin. And maybe that you had a rash beforehand or some type of skin disease and then actually didn't heal well and developed into tzarat. Or you have tzarat mechvat ish, which is tzarat that develops from a burn. And I, I actually, not only teach this, but I engage my children, especially on Fridays when I somehow get all these burns in the kitchen. And I asked them, I said, oh, what do you think about this color? Do you think uh, I should go to a Kohen now and see whether or not it's Sarat? Because in fact, burns first appear, as you know, again, it appears a little red and then it becomes white. And then again, it blisters and it becomes recessed under the skin. And you can imagine that if someone does not take care of a shrin, of dermatological phenomena or of their 
burns, it really could develop into tzarat. And what the Torah is telling us is be wary, be careful, go for your dermatological checks, make sure that it's not developing into any type of, of shalom, again, malignant cancer in any form. So what we find is, in fact, this idea of tzara'at already sensitizing us to the importance of being wary and certainly from through our skin our, itself, being observant and sensitive to what's going on with our bodies. So much so that there are some who explain that even skin diseases that we have today or and not different types of of, of rashes that we have may in fact be various mutations of what was originally tzarat. But in any event, the main lesson that we learned from these parashiyot is that we have to be cautious. We have to keep away from any disease that can spread. We have to set strict boundaries that are set in place to protect the public. And this, as we know, is the practice of the Ministry of Health in any civilized country. And in the Torah, this was part of the function of kohanim, of the religious leaders as well. And here we see that anyone who is concerned with Torah, with morality, and has to also adhere to these laws and orders and set firm, strict boundaries in place. And not only with regard to a coronavirus, but with regard to anything that can harm us physically and spiritually, alcohol, drugs, and car accidents. These are laws that are set in place in order to ensure and then right after speaking about the purification of the skin disease, wherein the Mitzvah has to wait seven clean days, ascertaining that in fact, he's returned to a natural state seven days, like by Briata Olam. And then he goes back to the Mikdash with a Karban Chatat and a Karban Ola. And then we find even physical emissions, physical emissions that will also render a man or a woman tameh in the case of a man, seminal emissions from the body in the case of a woman, again, menstrual bleeding from the body. But whatever the case may be, we see that there are going to be two different types of states, the Zav or the Zava, some type of unnatural, unhealthy state, but even a state of Shechvatzera, Anida, natural emissions, we're also supposed to be sensitive to, and by virtue of the fact that they're a loss of life, and realize that this carries with it religious implications. What's interesting, though, is that it appears after the closure of the Kohen, determining the status of Tuman Tahara of Tzarat, teaching us that with regard to our own physical emissions, we have to be sensitive to them. We're not going to go always to the Kohen to diagnose. We have to know what's going on within and inside our bodies. And the Ramban writes with regard to the physical emissions that when there are unnatural emissions, like in a case of Azov, it can be a serious disease. There are contagious sicknesses as well. And whenever you're in an unnatural state like Zav or Zava, in addition to waiting seven clean days and restoring and waiting for the restoration of natural health, you then bring Achatat, which is a way of saying, Hashem, I'm sorry that I haven't been in the Mikdash for more than seven days due to my state, but you also have to bring an Ola. You have to bring a sacrifice to give thanks to Hashem for healing, for purifying. And so from here we see that atonement goes hand in hand also with gratitude. 
And then we go on to the cases of women's health. Again, there's the normal healthy situation of a woman. Again, a woman who experiences her menstrual bleeding, which according to the Torah is seven days. Any woman who experiences, again, whether it's three days, five days, six days, even seven days of menstrual bleeding, that's a healthy blood that according to the Torah renders a woman nida for seven days. But then the Torah goes on and says that any woman though who has bleeding for three days beyond her seven days. So if a woman sees blood, not seven days, but eight, nine, 10, or a woman sees blood for three days after seeing blood, meaning within, uh, let's say, as Chazal teaches us, 11 days after becoming Anida, meaning she has a cycle wherein she sees blood more than once over the course of 18 days, then that's considered already unnatural, reminding us as well to teach ourselves, to teach our daughters that whenever we find some type of aberration in our menstrual bleeding, we have to realize the Torah is already telling us there's something imbalanced here. There's something unhealthy about this. Go to your gynecologist, get it checked out. This can be an early sign really of Ava, as we know, Ava ovarian cysts, this can be a sign of some type of hormonal imbalance. I always encourage even the students in Midrashah, the ones who know that they're amenorrhetic or the ones that know that they have either very long and heavy menstrual bleeding, please, please get it checked out. The Torah says you wouldn't be considered a nida, then, then you would be considered a zava. That's the unnatural type of bleeding that would require you after the bleeding ceases to then wait seven days and reestablish establish your cycle. In short then, again, the point of really these parshiots are to teach us that we have to go hands in hands. And the two ideas then of our religious well-being that's manifest through our relationship with the mikdash goes hand in hand with the physical well-being as well. So I hope that as you learn these parshiots and are sensitive not only to our menses and not only to the fusion of life and death through birth, but also pay attention to skin and follow rules of quarantine. And let us learn from these parshiots how wisdom and wellness within the religious and the medical realm really are fused into one by the Torah. May you all stay healthy, Be'ezrat Hashem, especially as we welcome in Rosh Chodesh Iyar this week. Chazal teach us Iyar, an acronym for Ani Hashem Rofecha. May this month, in fact, bring Rifu'ah, Rifu'ah Tanefesh and Rifu'ah Taguf to all those who are unwell May we adhere to the guidelines of the Torah, which means adhering to the guidelines of the Ministry of Health so that we can stay healthy and anticipate that we'll all be restored to a state of good health that will go hand in hand with restoration to the Mikdash. Shabbat Shalom. This week's podcast is sponsored in memory of Shoshana Leah Batharav Moshe. Sherry Grauer Raskas, Zal Perrin. Is there someone in your life that you want to honor? Someone who has helped you out or inspired you? Maybe it's a medical professional or a teacher or a yoetzet who went above and beyond to help you. Or a yard site or death that you want to mark. Please consider making a donation to support this podcast in honor of a special person in your life. This episode of Wisdom and Wellness was recorded by Shani Tarragon 
Music courtesy of Shimona Gottlieb and is a product of the Eden Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media and encourage others to subscribe. We welcome your feedback, sponsorships and support. You can reach us at www.theedencenter.com. Thank you.